0: Welcome to the Sound of Solidarity, brought to you by Solidarity. We're a revolutionary socialist group in Australia, and if you'd like to find out more about us, our website is solidarity.net.au. I'm David Glanz, and I'm recording this episode on unceded Wurundjeri land in Narm, or Melbourne. And today I'm looking at Russian leader Vladimir Putin, how he rose to power, his agenda in invading Ukraine, and the opposition to him within Russia. And in doing so, I need to get something clear from the beginning. Solidarity condemns Putin's invasion of Ukraine. And we look forward to his overthrow as the strongman leader of Russia. But the big question will be, who is going to bring that about? Now, in the West, Putin is attacked in all sorts of ways. And I think fundamentally those ways are intensely hypocritical. So yes, he is attacked for invading Ukraine, which is undoubtedly a fact. But what the critics of Putin ignore is that the US has bombed 24 countries. And that was just between 1945 and 1999. And that was followed by the invasion of Afghanistan that lasted for 20 years. The invasion of Iraq that led to hundreds of thousands of deaths US boots on the ground in Syria. And those who criticize Putin have nothing to say about Israel bombing Syria, sometimes Lebanon, sometimes Iran, and of course, frequently, the Palestinian population it has under its thumb. Putin is called undemocratic, and there's a pretty big element of truth about that. But you look at the US, you have a situation where the candidate who gets the most votes doesn't necessarily win. And there is massive gerrymandering, dating back to essentially the peace settlement with the slave trading states following the Civil War, which tilts power dramatically towards the smaller states which tend to be in the Midwest and vote Republican. Now, Paul Keating called the Australian Senate unrepresentative swill, because it is so much easier to get elected, say, from Tasmania than from New South Wales. That lack of equity is supercharged in America. California has two senators in the US Senate with a population of nearly 40 million. Wyoming has two senators in the Senate with a population of 580,000. The situation is pretty much guaranteed to build in a large conservative vote. And then you have the situation in Britain, for instance, just recently, where the authorities have brought in the need for voter id photo id in order to be able to vote a move that was calculated to exclude from voting some of the most disadvantaged people in society people on the on the edge of society and putin is attacked for his use of the vile uh, wagner group of mercenaries who have apparently won the battle to conquer the city, or the very small city or large town of Bakhmut, a battle which took many months, which was horribly bloody. And Wagner is a disgusting organisation. But what people forget is that the US had its own private military firm in Iraq. It was called Blackwater. It was responsible, or some of its members were responsible in 2007 for killing 14 civilians in Baghdad, including two children. Now, those people were jailed, but in 2020, Donald Trump pardoned them. And there is another equivalent of Wagner that the Americans used in Iraq, and it was called CACI, and it helped run the Abu Ghraib prison. And in that prison, Iraqis were subjected to abuses, including beatings, forced nudity, being, quotes, repeatedly shot in the head with a taser gun, quotes, beaten on the genitals with a stick, and forced to watch the rape of a female detainee. And then Putin is called mad, but the last president of the United States advised us all to drink bleach in order to deal with COVID. And you look at Boris Johnson or Barnaby Joyce, and you really have to wonder to what standard politicians are being held. on to more serious stuff. How did Putin rise to power? The collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991 signalled a fundamental shift from state capitalism sideways into free market capitalism. And that had been coming for a little while. And by 1990, Putin, who had previously been in the security services, was working for the mayor of St. Petersburg, Anatoly Sobchak. And together they were trying to get St. Petersburg ready to benefit from what they hoped would be a flood of global investment and uh, privatisation. Sobchak and Putin helped fend off a conservative coup in August 1991, a last-ditch attempt by the Stalinist remnants of the regime to hang on to the old state capitalist way of doing things. And that was beaten back, but it was not a democratic process. And those who benefited from the fall of the Soviet Union tended to be former communist politicians and apparatchiks who simply morphed into being democratic figures, so-called, and they positioned themselves to profit from the collapse of the Soviet Union, and there was a period of intense privatization which led to the formation of a group known as the Oligarchs, super-rich politically connected businessmen. In 1993, then President Yeltsin pushed through a new constitution that concentrated power in the hands of the presidency, and this authoritarian political setup was designed to protect the new model of private profit-making. But by '99, Yeltsin was a, lo- a liability. He stood aside and his by then Prime Minister Putin, took over, and Putin ensured that there was a mutually beneficial dynamic between the Russian state and the oligarchs. The Russian state still had considerable resources, particularly in the fossil fuel sector, and it worked closely with the oligarchs. The oligarchs were happy for Putin to build himself as a strong man leader, and Putin was happy in return for the oligarchs to engorge themselves in this new society. A society in which massive numbers of Russians suffered a catastrophic fall in their standard of living and Russia became an increasingly, dramatically unequal state, following many of the free market policies pushed by the US and the European Union, but supercharged. In 2001, it brought in a regressive flat tax, which hits the poorest hardest. It brought in uh, private finance types of initiatives for schools. And it's no wonder that Putin, far from being derided as a madman tyrant, was given a warm welcome by Western politicians during his early years in office. In 2003, he undertook a state visit to Britain. It was connected to an oil deal between Russia and British oil interests, and he was escorted to Buckingham Palace by cavalry to meet the Queen. Like so many reactionary politicians, Putin turned to chauvinism, to nationalism and racism, in order to bolster... His position, especially given the catastrophic fall in living standards. Yeltsin had previously lost the first war against uh, the very small Caucasian state of Chechnya, and he lost that war between 1994 and 1996 because of opposition from the Chechens and opposition on the streets of Russia. But Putin used his much stronger position in 1999-2000 to overwhelm the Chechen resistance, and this built his credibility, his nationalist credibility. And that military victory, taken together with a spike in oil prices in the 2000s, underpinned his regime's stability. It allowed Putin to build up the armed forces, and it used the country's oil and gas resources to grow in strength. But let's remember, Russia is a powerful nation in one respect, it has a very large nuclear arsenal, but it is also quite a poor country in terms of GDP or wealth per capita, per person in the population. Overall, Russia ranks 11th globally for its GDP, for its gross domestic product, but that's with a population of 146 million. Australia is only a little way behind in 13th place with a population of 26 million people. So Putin has a problem that his people are poor, And that when he spends money on military adventures, when he makes the uh, when he allows the oligarchs to get rich and he gets himself rich too through corruption, he knows that the population can become restive. And so he uses military power to assert political power externally and to build up his nationalist credentials internally in order to try and maintain a power base. So Putin invaded. Georgia in 2008. And then in 2014, he annexed the Crimea and backed separatist insurgencies in Donetsk and Luhansk uh, in the eastern part of Ukraine. And then, of course, last year, he invaded Ukraine. Now, while Russia was asserting itself in what it calls its near abroad in Chechnya and Georgia, Crimea and so on, NATO, the Western military alliance led by the United States was pushing eastwards. Now, initially in 1990, the US Secretary of State James Baker promised the then Soviet president Mikhail Gorbachev that NATO would not expand east of Germany following German reunification. Quotes, "NATO will not extend by a single inch to the east," he said. But that promise was broken. In 1999, NATO swallowed Hungary Poland and the Czech Republic. In 2004, seven more Eastern European countries joined NATO, including Lithuania, Latvia and Estonia, all formerly part of the Soviet Union. And as of 2019, there were 12 new NATO bases east of Germany and 13 Eastern European and Balkan countries had joined NATO. What we were seeing in practice was two big imperialist power blocks coming closer and closer together. Now, with a shared border in Scandinavia between the NATO bloc and Russia, and a real fear for Russia that Ukraine would join NATO. And if it did so, it would bring Western military power and potentially Western nuclear missiles within just hundreds of kilometers of Moscow and St. Petersburg. Now, neither side is right in this debate, but we have to understand the Ukraine invasion was neither mad nor bad, but it flowed from the logic of imperialism. The U.S. could have abandoned NATO at the end of the Cold War. It kept it and it expanded it in order to keep Russia, uh, as far as possible, weakened and under its thumb, and to send a message to the rest of the world that the U.S. was still in charge. Putin responded with the same logic invading Ukraine to make it clear that Russia would not be intimidated by the West. And of course, this has gone very badly, but that's not, of course, what Putin thought when he launched the attack in February last year. You look at the war in Ukraine, and the reality is there are probably three potential outcomes. One is that Ukraine, armed to the teeth by the West, goes all out and conquers All the territory has lost to Russia. That's in the Donbass region in the southeast and the Crimea. Has to be said that's extremely unlikely. The battle for Bakhmut, which is a town of what 70,000 people, ran for months and months and months and led to the most atrocious bloodshed. The idea that Ukrainian forces can seize back all that territory is almost certainly unrealistic. It could only happen with the deaths of of tens or hundreds of thousands more people, and it would risk Russia responding with nuclear escalation. And for that reason, the US keeps Zelensky, the leader of uh, Ukraine, on something of a short leash. The US will back Ukraine in order to use it as a proxy to weaken Russia and to send a message to China, but the US does not want to see Ukraine so successful that Russia escalates the conflict To a nuclear level the next most likely outcome and this is the one which most foreign policy experts are expecting to happen is that there is further bloody fighting for a year for two years for three years no one knows how long until one side or another feels that it can push through a truce and some kind of peace deal what that will look like we don't know how it will be achieved we know with absolute certainty with massive destruction, massive killing, massive dislocation of people within Ukraine, and the possibility and the risk that the war escalates, drawing in NATO or taking the the war over the border into, into, into Russia and leading to an even greater conflagration. But there is a third way in which the war can end, and actually Putin can be dealt with, and that is the methodology of revolt from below, The approach of revolution. Now some people will say that's entirely unrealistic, but that's exactly how the First World War was brought to an end. There was no military victory by the West, by by Britain, its empire allies like Australia, or by the, the US. The war came to an end because first Russian workers and peasants in uniform, soldiers, refused to fight, went home to their families, overthrew the tsarist monarchy and then overthrew capitalism in October 1917 and that revolution helped spark further revolts in particular in Germany in 1918 which brought the war to an end when sailors refused to take the german navy out to sea to fight when soldiers and and workers armed themselves and marched through the streets of berlin and other cities in demanding that the power should be Uh, transferred to the people, and that the Kaiser, the equivalent of the Tsar, should be overthrown. You look at the war in Vietnam. The US was driven out of Vietnam in the 1970s, first and foremost by the incredible resilience and resistance of the Vietnamese people themselves. But a major factor in the US withdrawing was that their military was beginning to disintegrate. US soldiers did not want to fight anymore. Uh, US soldiers were beginning to kill their own officers and um, refusing to go out on patrol. And the US ruling class was really worried that that spirit of insubordination, mutiny, and revolution would spread back to the mainland of the US, where there were already massive anti war protests and up to a million students regarded themselves as revolutionaries. Okay, none of that applies right now to Russia. So, what are the prospects? for revolt. The first argument back against what I'm saying is that there will be repression. And that's absolutely the case. There was was repression, of course, in Russia and Germany during the First World War. Repression can be beaten by mass defiance. In Russia, Article 275 of the Russian Criminal Code, treason against the motherland, can be used against anti-military activists, even for just objective reporting of the facts, and the punishment can be up to 20 years in prison. Media outlets are prohibited from using the words war and occupation, and large sections of the opposition media outlets either have been or are in the process of being shut down. The Kremlin cracked down on political opposition and protests after the invasion. And let's not forget, the invasion led thousands of people around Russia across from the west to the east to come out on the streets against the war. About 20,000 of those protesters have been detained uh, since the war began, according to OVD Info, a human rights watchdog. Many lost their jobs after protesting, signing petitions, or writing social media posts critical of the war. So repression is one factor that we have to be honest about and take into account. The second factor is that the left... The genuine left in Russia, not the Communist Party, which is fundamentally nationalist and with a big streak of racism about it and which looks back with nostalgia to the days of, of Stalinism, but the genuine left, the revolutionary socialist left, the anarchist left in Russia is very, very small. But we also have to remind ourselves that in 1910, the Bolshevik Party ceased to exist in Moscow. The Bolsheviks were disintegrating after the defeat of an earlier revolution in 1905. In Moscow, a police spy took over the group and essentially shut it down. Seven years later, the Bolsheviks led the working class to state power. So we should not assume that a small left necessarily means that the prospects of revolt are insignificant. And the German revolution happened despite there being not a clear revolutionary party that understood the need to to build the revolution and and challenge the state. Now, the German revolution didn't overthrow capitalism because of that weakness, but it stopped the war. And in Russia, anger has broken through before. So in 2005, two and a half million pensioners protested across Russia over benefit cuts. In December 2012, tens of thousands of Russians protested against electoral fraud in elections to the Duma, the Russian parliament, that Putin saw as a dry run for the presidential election the following spring. On the official figures, the United Russia Party, which supports Putin, got just under 50% of the vote, and that was significantly down from 64% in 2007. But many people think the party's vote was as low as 35%. That tells you that Putin is standing on quite a narrow support base. Despite the repression, workers have continued to organize. Now, draconian labor laws adopted in the early 2000s make it difficult to form unions and organize strikes legally, a story actually we're not too unfamiliar with here in Australia. And Putin's authoritarian regime has co-opted official trade unions that inherited Soviet-era traditions but there have been attempts to build alternative grassroots organisations that have sometimes filled some of that space. Many of these independent unions have been much smaller as they've usually been formed on a professional or industry basis. So for instance, amongst car workers, and of course they are vulnerable to persecution. But in 2018, for instance, there were high profile strikes at a Ford car plant near St. Petersburg Organised by the independent Interregional Trade Union. Now, that Interregional Trade Union was dissolved under state coercion and state pressure, but there have been other ones formed since. An Interregional Union of Health Workers called Action was founded in December 2012 and it comprises 115 organisations that unite thousands of healthcare workers. And just last Christmas, food delivery workers, the equivalent of Uber Eats deliverers, members of a small independent union called Kuria, staged a five-day strike across Russia in the run-up to Christmas. About 3,800 delivery workers in more than 15 cities took part. And I think when we're looking at repressure and the possibility for workers' action, It's worth remembering that in China, where there is also substantial repression of independent political or union organization, there is a growing number of strikes and protests. And the China Labor Bulletin reported recently that the number of strikes and protests amongst manufacturing workers in the first three months of 2023 was more than the entire total for 2022. If Chinese workers can organise and strike and protest, Russian workers can do the same. Now, another factor which leads to the possibility of a challenge to Putin is his need to conscript fighters for the Russian army. After all, the Wagner group largely consists of prisoners who have been released from jail on a promise of freedom if they're prepared to risk their lives fighting on the front line. In September 2022, Putin called up 300,000 fighters. And this led to mass arrests and mass protests. So 2,000 people were arrested, but there were protests all across the country. People chanted, send Putin to the trenches and no to war. Others responded in a more passive way by fleeing Russia. There was a mass exodus. Men of fighting age uh, bought airline tickets. Uh, queued at the borders for hours to enter countries like Mongolia, Finland, Georgia and Kazakhstan. And there has been resistance amongst many of the ethnic minorities within Russia because there has been a particular push by Russia to mobilise what racist Russians would call black Russians, people from the Caucasus and from Siberia who are expected to carry a disproportionate load of, uh, of the fighting in the same way that African Americans have been uh, expected to carry much of the fighting in Vietnam and on and onwards and all of this means that there is an enormous reservoir of hidden resentment. The veteran Russian socialist Boris Kagalitsky said and I quote, if you look on Russian social media networks where you can post anonymously, the atmosphere is very negative towards the war. People are very critical and publish a lot of very angry texts against the war. So the anti-war movement is very weak, but it has tremendous potential. And that resistance comes in all sorts of forms. The magazine Verstka reported that Russians have carried out more than 2,000 arson attacks and at least 86 acts of sabotage on railways in 60 locations within Russia. And these attacks are published by anonymous communities who call themselves Partisans. And then resistance can take different forms again. In January this year, 2023, a Russian missile struck a residential building in the the Ukrainian city of Dnipro, killing 46 people and injuring 80. The response in Russia was quite remarkable. People were too scared to come out onto the streets in large numbers, but they responded nonetheless. In at least 60 cities across Russia, people went to statues of Ukrainian poets Taras Shevchenko or Lesya Ukrainka, or they went to monuments of victims of Soviet-era political repression and they put down flowers, stuffed toys, handwritten notes. It was a quiet but widespread response against the war. One woman who laid flowers at a memorial in the Siberian city of Novosibirsk said, it's a statement against the war, not just mourning for the dead people in Dnipro. Many of those who took part in what became known as the flower protest told the Moscow Times that remembering the Dnipro victims helped them feel like part of a broader anti-war movement. Zakhar, a young man who laid flowers in St. Petersburg said, it's not for the dead, it's for the living. We need to know that we are not alone. Another woman in Pskov said, I feel incredible shame for my country and the inability to help in any way, except for such small gestures. People in my city who are against the war should realise that there are many of us. Tatiana Krupina, a 28 year old chemist, went with a small group of friends to lay flowers. She said, in contemporary Russia, under these conditions, it is a battle, a silent battle. A lawyer called Ekaterina Varanek said, I want to show my opinion, laying flowers at a statue. And Varanek said she last protested when the opposition politician, Alexei Navalny, was arrested two years ago. She stayed home when thousands protested initially against the war, but she said of the latest crackdown, every day it gets worse and worse, stricter and stricter. And she stood in front of the statue with a homemade poster that read, Ukraine, not our enemies, but our brothers. A pensioner called Rita cried as she said, how can this be happening? People are dying, children, the elderly. It is just awful. Maybe this will be a reminder to people that we are living in a terrifying world. Maxim Shatolov, a former flight attendant, said he'd been fired from his job because of his anti-war position, but he became friends with a tight-knit circle of activists after being thrown into a police van after a protest in April last year. And during the summer and autumn last year, the northern summer and autumn, they protested against the mobilisation, the conscription, painted anti-war messages around their city in chalk, and laid flowers at memorials. Another woman Anna Saiftindinova waited until there was no one around to make her little protest. She said, I've already spent eight days in jail for protesting mobilization. And if I'm detained again, I face criminal charges. That could be a sentence of up to 10 years. It's like Russian roulette, she said. You never know when something bad could happen or when it won't happen. Some people have been detained for holding a blank piece of paper in public but she still came out and protested. The lawyer, Varanek, I mentioned earlier said, Moscow is a huge city and everyone is quiet, but I want to show the world that we should not be quiet. We allow all of this with our silence. Now, clearly laying flowers at a statue will not stop Putin and I'm not pretending it is, but I'm trying to paint a picture, which is one that we don't often get in the Western media that Russia is not fully in lockstep with Putin, is not fully endorsing the war. And that position is likely to, to become of doubt, suspicion, or hostility to the war is only likely to grow as the body bags come back in greater numbers, as more parents mourn the loss of their sons, as the cost of fighting the war means that living standards for ordinary people are, are tightened again and again. So whether it is in the independent unions, whether it's amongst the ethnic minorities who feel oppressed by the central government in Moscow, whether it's the anti-war movement that has come onto the streets in different numbers time and time again, back last year, then again against conscription, again in the flower protests. If it's the workers who are beginning uh, to feel the pain of the war, the possibility of revolt is real and that means there is another way of bringing down Putin, a way of bringing down Putin of mass revolt from below that can challenge his agenda of war, of nationalism, of racism, of economic restraint and poverty and, uh, and restriction on, pe- on people's lives. We have to hold out that possibility. And what we do in the West matters. Comrades of Solidarity in Egypt told the story about how when the anti-war movement came out onto the streets in massive numbers, the biggest coordinated protests in world history in 2003 to try and prevent the Western invasion, the Australian invasion of Iraq, and two million people marched through the centre of London, it created uh, an electrifying effect inside Egypt, because people who felt that the West oppressed them as Muslims, began to realize that the West was divided between an imperialist set of ruling classes who supported war against Iraq and the oppression of the people of the Middle East, and a significant minority, maybe even on occasions a majority, who stood with the ordinary people of the Middle East. And it opened up a debate and a possibility of understanding that we are not divided by nation, that we are divided by class and our brothers and sisters, whether it's from Egypt to Britain, or whether it's from Ukraine to Russia, that our brothers and sisters are our fellow fellow workers. And that means our number one priority in Australia has to be to build the anti-war movement. We need to demonstrate to people inside Russia that there are people in the West who are opposed to the warmongering. Now, much of the current campaign in Australia is focused on the AUKUS coalition, and the buying of nuclear submarines. And quite rightly, that debate is framed in terms of the the West's uh, attempt to coerce and uh, restrict the ability of China to grow and, 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 and expand, and it raises the risk of war. But Australia is linked to NATO, which is essentially bankrolling and arming Ukraine in its fight against Russia. The U.S. is supporting Ukraine against Russia, partly to constrain Russia, but partly to send a message to China that the U.S. is prepared to use its power, its financial, economic, political and and military power in order to assert its primacy in world politics. So the movement against AUKUS and the nuclear submarines here is very much of a piece. We are facing a general ramping up in imperialist, tensions between the West, between Russia and China, of which the Australian ruling class, shamefully led by Anthony Albanese, is very much a part. So when we build opposition to the prospect of war, when we say no to the AUKUS military and political pact, when we say no to the Quad, when we say no to the build-up of Australian military might, when we say no to the, the basing of US B 52 bombers in the Northern Territory or American Marines and soldiers, we're building part of a global anti war movement. And that has the effect of sending a message to workers in Russia that they have allies in the West. They don't have to line up with Putin. They are not victims of the West, they are victims of imperialist rivalry and they have allies in the working class and the anti-war activists in the Western imperialist countries. And I think one other part of the jigsaw puzzle is I've mentioned comrades in Egypt, and we have comrades in countries around the world of solidarity. And the stronger the revolutionary left around the world, the stronger the anti-war movement and the fight against the dangers of an imperialist conflict which would lead to suffering on a catastrophic level. So whether it's building the movement here in Australia against war and nuclear submarines, against austerity, demanding that the money that's spent on warfare is spent on welfare, on education, on health, on action around climate change, on jobs, that movement is stronger here and around the world if the revolutionary left is stronger. So to be honest, if you agree with what I've argued here over the last little while, you should seriously consider joining Solidarity. Contact us at solidarity.net.au and join us in building a stronger revolutionary left, a stronger anti-war movement, and help us reach out the hand of friendship to our Russian and Chinese brothers and sisters in the working class of the world.